following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. If you were with us last week, I preached on how we struggle with being emotionally honest with God because we don't want to admit how broken we really are. But in Psalm 139, David invites us into the honesty that God desires from us by revealing to us that he can be trusted. He can be trusted with our hearts, even in all of its brokenness. And this morning, and over the next few weeks, I'll be preaching on some of the other Psalms of David. And today's Psalm 13. And over that time, I'm hoping that as we explore the heart of David through these prayerful songs that he wrote, that we will discover the pathway into the heart of God as well. And this will mean getting into touch with our own heart first and you know, all of this range of emotions, just as David did, so that there's an integrity in our walk with God and, and even in our worship of him. So before we get started, let's pray one more time. Lord, we come to you this morning seeking not greater understanding, but just your presence. Lord, we want to share in the heart of David, a man who pursued your heart. And we ask that your spirit would um, grant us that same heart, a heart that pursues you, a heart that seeks you, that desires nothing more than you. And as we look into this psalm now this morning, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to your heart for us. And so we submit this time to you, and we lift it up in your son's name. Amen. Uh, as I shared last week, uh, I, I feel like I'm a pretty emotionally stunted person. And uh, exploring the heart of David in, in, this, in this series, sermon series, has been very eye-opening for me. And I grew up in a home where we, we just didn't talk much about our emotions, let alone express them. And so a few years ago, when um, this Pixar movie, Inside Out, uh, was released, Kim and I took our kids to watch it, and I hate to say this, but within the first 20 minutes, I was like totally asleep. <laughs> and this rarely happens to me, because I, I hate paying like $10 to sleep for two hours, <laughs> but that's what I did. And I just, I honestly, I just didn't get the movie. It was like, they were like speaking a foreign language to me. It was all these talk about emotions, right? And so this past week, I just got convicted, you know, in my sermon preparation. I went back and I felt like I should watch this movie, give it another chance, because I'm so emotionally woke now. But um, <laughs> there are a few parts, you know, as I was watching the movie where I actually questioned whether the writer was on drugs or something. But overall... I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was very thought-provoking. And if you're not familiar with the story, there's the main characters of this, of this young girl named Riley, who's a 12-year-old living in this idyllic suburban life in Minnesota, when her world is suddenly flipped upside down. It's disrupted because her father gets a new job, and the whole family now has to move to San Francisco. And um, the movie... Uh, in the movie, as her life is kind of in this new place and um, everything is so different, she's, she's unable to process all these emotions that are just 
raging inside of her. And she struggles to be honest with her parents about these emotions. And, and, and towards the end, she even runs away from home. But eventually she decides to return and she, rediscover, she rediscovers um, the love of her parents in a way that she never really uh, understood before and she, as she opens herself up to them. I was, I was debating showing you a clip, but I, just for the sake of time, just if you have the opportunity, watch it and watch it with your kids. I think it would be a good uh, a way to st- even start a conversation on really uh, kind of understanding our emotions. Because I think the best part of this movie is that it forces us to consider the importance of all of our emotions, even the ones that we often think of as very like negative ones, right? Like whether it's anger or fear or sadness. And it examines the, the, the role that each of these emotions play in our development as human beings. And, you know, over the past year, we've been talking a lot about emotional coaching and these parenting seminars uh, and our leadership seminars. We've been talking about um, understanding our emotions better um, and being emotionally healthy. Um, And so over the past year, I've been thinking a lot about how I have not made my home a safe place emotionally for my children. And, you know, I'm talking about a place where it's okay to express anger or sadness or frustration without being lectured by me or just, you know, summarily dismissed. And I realized I rarely encourage them to kind of stay in that place when I see them there and give them the space to process their emotions in a healthy way. And I think just ignoring them or burying them, that's often how I deal with those emotions. That's just the way I expected them to handle it. That's the way I saw it growing up often, and that's the way I often dealt with it myself. And so... As we, dug in, as we dig into David and the Psalms, I'm realizing more and more that God is, God is so not like this. And it makes me grateful that God is not like this. And it makes me want to repent as a parent. And you know, this morning as we look into Psalm 13, this is a much shorter psalm than last week. But I think this psalm gives us a model, a blueprint for how we are to deal with anger and frustration not just with our enemies, but with God in particular, when we feel that he's absent in our lives. And I think if we're honest, we've all been in in that place before. Maybe we're even in that place right now. And so I want to read these verses for you, six verses from Psalm 13. It says this in the NIV. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. As I shared last week, I believe the reason why God labels David as a man after my own heart is not just to set him apart from all of us, but it's to show the world how God desires that we approach him on every level spiritually, emotionally, relationally. 
And I think the greatest proof of this is the fact that he didn't just give us David's life story. He gave us a record of David's innermost thoughts, his struggles, in the, in the many psalms that David wrote. And this is truly a gift, I think, to the church, for, for each of us. You know, David is a model for us, I think, and today he models for us how we are to approach God when, we, when we're upset, when we're angry and frustrated with him, when we feel that he has forgotten us, even abandoned us. And in Psalm 13, many scholars believe that David is in the wilderness and he's running from King Saul, who is seeking his life. And he's in this dark place. His anointing as king now seems like a distant memory to him. It's just a broken promise for all he knows. And David, when he writes this psalm, he opens this lament with four questions, and they all begin with the same two words. How long? How long? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day of sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? I think this is a question that we actually ask ourselves almost every day without even really knowing it, right? We get up in the morning, we go to work. How long before this traffic clears up? Late in the morning, it's, how long until lunchtime? Look outside, how long before the weather gets warmer? How long before this guy's done preaching today? <laughs> but this question has different levels of urgency, right? Sometimes these how long questions, they get deeper and they get more fraught with anxiety. And it's like, how long before I find the love of my life? How long before we have our first child? How long before I can get out of this horrible job? How long before there's peace in my home again? And I think we have to ask ourselves, what is that how long question that's in our heart and soul these days? It's a very simple question, but it's a very frequent one if, if you really think about it, that we ask ourselves, even subconsciously. But if you listen to that question carefully, I think it's our soul's way of saying something. It's our soul's way of saying, I, I don't like where I am right now. I'm frustrated in this place. I need things to change. And sometimes this, this how long, it can reach a crescendo where it's no longer an expression of frustration or annoyance. It's a desperate and it's an angry cry that God has failed me. Life is not at all what I expected it to be. I've been suffering for so long, even praying for years, and nothing has changed, and nothing looks like it will change. And there's a sense of abandonment. And I think this is a much scarier place to be because you realize now it's not about just waiting for things to change or circumstances to be different. It's about bigger questions such as, can I trust you, God? Are you real? Have you abandoned me? 
is following you even, even worth it anymore? And those are frightening questions because they get at the very core of who we are and what we believe, and, and they can shake the foundations of our faith. And this is the honest journey that David takes his emotions to as he follows what is in his heart and his soul. And it's not just frustration and waiting for something to change. It's a primal scream, and it's a sense of despair that God has let him down, that God has forgotten him. And, you know, if you follow David's life, even up to this point, it's hard not to be sympathetic with David. I mean, here's a guy who has experienced this incredible power of God in his life. Like, he was anointed to be Israel's next king. He led his nation to victory against all odds. You know, this guy is synonymous now with the greatest underdog story of all time. I mean, that's how God used him as a young boy, as a young man. And all that is just like a distant memory now. It's just a cruel and forgotten promise. And David's in this dark cave in the wilderness, and he's wondering, God, do you see me? Lord, do you even care? But I think what we need to notice is even in this troubled state, David is very much in touch with what is going on inside of him. He's very much in touch with his emotions. And if you notice in verse 2, he says this, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? David shows us that he is keenly aware of the need to take care of his soul. And he possesses an emotional awareness of where he's at with himself. And this is rare. I think this is actually a pretty rare quality, especially for, for guys, right? The picture I have, like, in my mind's eye of David is like Mel Gibson in Braveheart, right? It's like he's this fearless leader, this... This warrior who has the courage to lead a nation to, to all these great military victories. And he has the charisma to lead thousands into battle. But we learn in scriptures, yes, he was all those things. But he was also very much an accomplished harpist. He was probably the greatest poet of all time. And of all the people that God could have lifted up as an example of someone who was unafraid to get in touch with his feelings and be sensitive to his soul, it's David. And I think God here is destroying like all the stereotypes here. And it's almost as if he's saying, like, I don't care how much of a man's man you think you are. And that's what David was. He truly was a man's man. But David went there. And you can go there too. I want you to enter into my heart just as David did. But it first requires you to enter into yours. And this is what David does throughout his entire life. And even in this very psalm, David digs deep and he comes to terms with his emotions, what's going on inside of him. But that's only the first step. And I think what can't be lost here is that even in the midst of his shaken faith, David still has enough faith to know who to go to in his anger and his frustration and his sorrow. And I think that's where a lot of us fail. We'll go anywhere but to God. We'll go to other people. We'll talk about our frustrations with other people. We'll gossip. We'll vent. 
But David here demonstrates a faith, and it's not a lot of faith. I mean, he's angry at God. He's upset, but it's the faith of a mustard seed, and that's enough. And Dan Allender in his book, The Cry of the Soul, says this, the psalmist, David here, is engaged in a deep struggle with God over his fears and depression, and he demands an accounting from God. In his anxiety, he throws God's promises back in his divine face. Long ago, God had promised to be with his people in a covenant relationship. That meant he would protect them and watch over them. He had promised to show them favor, unfailing love, to be merciful and keep his promise. And the psalmist confronts God here and he demands to know whether he is a liar. In the midst of his pain, he looks at his situation and wonders if God has reneged on his promises to him. We are too quick to explain away this kind of language. Most of us would be scared to death to talk to God this way. But what do we do instead? We repress our strong emotions and too quickly and unreflectively turn it over to God. If we are honest with ourselves, however, we don't really put it in God's hands. We bottle it up within ourselves. And and like I said, I, I wonder how many of us just fail right there at that point, in that very first step. We're not honest about our emotions, or we don't even bother to try to understand them. And again, not to generalize, but I think this is where, this is where most men struggle and fail. You know, just ask a guy sometime after he shares something vulnerable, like, hey, how did that make you feel, man? And just watch him squirm. <laughs> I think most guys would be like, uh what do you mean by that? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to even put words to our feelings. We're just, we just don't go there very often. The truth is, even if we recognize the emotions inside us, as Allender says, we tend to repress it. And we wallow in these negative emotions all on our own, within ourselves, and we bottle it up. And we don't ever take what we feel before God because we're too ashamed of what it reveals. So we let it rot inside of us, and it kills us slowly from the inside out. And Allender closes with this. He says, the problem continues to exist, and our fear festers and grows inside of us, alienating us not only from our true emotions, but also from God. And the irony of faith is that it is not a quiet submission to the fates. It asks, and it shouts. It is a cry that is heard in heaven. And the irony of questioning God is that it honors him. It turns our hearts away from ungodly despair and toward a passionate desire to comprehend him. I think this is so important for people of faith to understand what Allender is speaking of here. Because God doesn't want us to make ourselves presentable before we come to him. None of us will ever get there. He wants us to come in all of our brokenness. So screaming in anger at God can be an even greater act of faith if your screaming is sincere than whispering theologically rich but insincere prayers. We cannot be afraid to be honest with God about our pain even if we feel that he is the cause of our pain. And that's what David shows us. 
And while his pain here is palpable, I want you to notice something about even the way he cries out to God. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? This idea of longing to see God's face is not at all uncommon with David throughout so many of his psalms. This was very much a Jewish expression of blessing and favor and intimacy and relationship. And where did David learn this kind of language? You know, it first appears in the book of Numbers. After the exodus from Egypt, God instructs Moses to tell Aaron as the priest to give his people this priestly blessing. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. David was claiming the favor and the blessing of this promise given to his people over four centuries earlier in the midst of, his, of their wilderness wandering. And now he, he's claiming that promise for himself in his own wilderness wandering. And, you know, when you dig into the Old Testament, you realize this is actually a very common practice among all these great men and women of God, all the patriarchs of the faith who received a promise from God is they would repeat God's promise back to God when they were struggling to see him at work in their lives. And I wonder how often we do this. And, you know, I used to think when I would read this all the time that this is like some manipulative way to try to get some type of a response from God, right? Like a child reminding, you know, a forgetful parent, like, but you promised me, God. But if you think about it, that's, that's not what's happening. That's kind of ridiculous, actually. Does God really need me to hold him accountable? Can God possibly forget something that he has promised to me already? You know, later in the book of Numbers, God says this in Numbers 23, verse 19 through Balaam. He says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And so I think it begs the question, like, why are these promises of God always repeated back to God? And here's why I think David models this practice for all of us here and all throughout the Psalms and why God encourages us to do the same is I think when we repeat God's promises back to him in our times of struggle, it's not to remind God of what he has forgotten. It's for us to remind ourselves of what we are prone to forget. He has promised He is true to his word. He will be faithful. And the fact that David can even repeat these promises to God, even in his anger towards God, means that David himself has not forgotten them, has he? And neither should we. So in our anger and our frustration with God, God desires that we be honest about what we are feeling towards him, with him, because even this is an act of faith. Verse 3 and 4, after these four how long questions, David now says this, Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
Now, most scholars think that David may have been on the brink of death here, as his words even seem to suggest. And if you recall, he even tells Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, your father is after me, Saul. And there's but a step between me and death. But in the midst of expressing his anger and his anxiety, he pivots and he, and he prays a simple prayer. But it's not just any prayer. It's a prayer of supplication. He's not adoring God right now. He's not giving thanks. He's not confessing sin, even though he may be even sinning in his anger. He's just offering up a prayer of supplication. He's just asking God for three things. He's just saying, look on me. Answer me. Revive me. That's it. There's nothing special about this prayer. It's so simple. A child could pray this prayer. But in this prayer, David in his soul is crying out, let me see you. Let me hear you again, Lord. Let me be revived and renewed by your presence. And what did the man after God's own heart do when his heart was filled with anger even towards God? He, he turned to God, not away from him. And this may not seem like much, right? But it's so important. You know, when we pray prayers of supplication and faith, what are we actually doing? Is, you know, if we're doing it in faith, we're not rubbing a lamp to get our God to give us some favors. We're acknowledging that while we have no power or, or control over our current situation, God does. God has the power to change this. And so this type of prayer, if prayed sincerely, it's, it's actually a very honest and humble admission that I need to do for God, I need God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. But notice what makes David's prayer of supplication unique from so many of ours. His prayers of supplication were nothing more than just wanting God, wanting more of God's presence in his life. And the man after God's own heart, he shows us that when our heart is troubled, that is what we need. We need God's presence. We don't need our enemies to go away as much as we need God to be near. And I believe God will always answer that prayer for more of him. The problem is we always ask for lesser things. But for David, this was the greatest thing. And in another psalm, Psalm 27, he expresses a very similar prayer. And he says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Yes, David feared for his life, but what he desired more was God's life in him. How many of us, when we were angry at God, seek him? But God is good enough to even use our anger towards him in redemptive ways as a means to draw us to himself. And when we come to this place by faith, God may not change our situation or our circumstances, but he will change our perspective. 
He will change our heart. And this is what happens when we see uh, David in verse 5 says this, I, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. You know, that's quite a turnaround there, right? We have no idea how long it took David to go from writing verses 1 through 4 to now writing this, verse 5 and 6. But, you know, I think sometimes it can be a very immediate kind of change, but often this process can take months or even years before we can say these same words. I trust in your unfailing love. I rejoice in your salvation. And he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is the special Hebrew word, hesed. Which is a very common term for love in the Old Testament, but you know, there's, it's, it's translated in so many different ways. It's a term that was often reserved for God's covenant people. And so it's the language of a deep and devoted love that is committed and faithful. So it's often translated as you know, unfailing love, steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, loyal love. But even in his anger, David's words all throughout this chapter as he's praying and singing is filled with this covenantal language of relationship. Speaking of seeking God's face and his hesed love, remembering God's covenant, remembering that God's covenant is secured by God's character. And this is what causes him to actually launch into worship. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And what we see is when we turn to God in these moments of honest, even frustrated prayer, I believe the Holy Spirit not only brings to our minds words of truth, but even past memories of God's faithfulness in our lives. Times when he has been good to me. And as a way of encouraging us to trust him and to press on. And that is a mercy of God. And in surrendering his emotions to God and acknowledging his need for help, David's heart and his perspective, they are transformed. And, you know, this, again, was not, probably not an instantaneous event. But as David, in faith, continues to open up his heart to God, even in all of its ugliness, we see God open up his heart to David in all of its glory. And David can't help but worship him. He's overwhelmed by his love. You know, this psalm is so brief, and it's so abrupt even. And when you read it, I mean, you could read it in like 20 seconds. Um, It seems to almost take a very complex struggle and almost trivialize it, right? Oversimplify it. How does someone go from a place of anger, pain and sorrow with God, and suddenly transform to praising him for his love and worshiping him in his faithfulness without any real change in their circumstances? And it seems so foreign to so many of us, right? I want to close with this last story um, that I think embodies this psalm so well in a real-life context. You know, in, 
In some of my past sermons over the last few years, I've shared uh, stories of uh, Mike and Esther Lee. I know many of you know them personally. Uh, I know she attends one of our community groups, Esther does. But I've shared a lot of stories about Mike and Esther Lee and their daughter, Ava, who, as many of you know, fought a valiant battle with cancer and went to be with the Lord over two years ago. And it's hard to believe it's been that long already. And, you know, I often refer to many of Esther's posts during that struggle because their journey in that trial was just such an encouragement of faith. You know, when Ava was sick, it only made sense to get regular updates from Esther and to hear stories about what is happening there so that anyone and everyone could join in praying for her. But when Ava finally passed, you know, I... I wasn't sure if or even how Esther could continue to just open up her life in that way. If she were to continue to write, it would no longer be as a mother battling cancer with her daughter, galvanizing support for her, but it would be as a mother grieving the loss of her child. And that's a very private and personal pain. And it seemed unreasonable for her to continue to go to those places, especially in a very public way as she was doing But I'm so grateful that Esther just has continued to write now about even her journey through grief and sorrow and her pain and even her her doubts and all of her raw emotions. And when I read some of her posts, it feels like a modern version of so many of David's psalms wrestling with God in her pain and in her sorrow. A little over a month ago, Esther wrote one post in particular that I want to read for you, and she gave me permission to share this. And I think, like I said, it captures the spirit of Psalm 13 so well. The spirit of how do you pivot from pain and sorrow and a sense of even abandonment from God to suddenly realizing his Hesed love in your life? It seems a bit unrealistic, right? But I think her poster captures this so well, how God meets us in our honest pain, even when we feel that he is the cause of it. So let me just close with reading this. It is past 4 a.m., and though I should be sleeping, I find myself sinking instead. It's maddening because for a moment I thought I was standing or at least kneeling on solid ground. But it turns out I'm still waiting waist-deep in water. It only takes small waves to overwhelm me. Those waves are all around. Today, grief greeted me in the form of Gwen's sad eyes. That's Ava's younger sister. Gwen's sad eyes, eager for one more play date with Ava. And we go to the children's museum, but it's just not the same without Ava. And as I'm driving, she suddenly says, Mama, Sometimes I have this picture in my mind of Ava coming down from the sky and she is surrounded by angels. We stop the car, we run out to her and we are crying and she gives us all tight hugs one last time. Then there's the occasional sigh from Jude. What's wrong, I'll ask. I miss Ava, he says. And I wonder how much of it are his memories and how much of it is just the quiet sense of her absence that fills each room. The days turn to weeks, turn to months, turn to seasons, like this cold winter night. 
and I can't believe we have come this far. Yet in the same breath, I gasp at how much there is still left to go. But in this quiet, dark dead of night, I wonder if I'm alone. But it only takes one moment to be confronted by the closeness of God. It's not a grand gesture or the heavens opening up to bring Ava down for one last hug. Instead, it's a book that I've read to her a dozen times before, but only today discovered that the dedication and the words on the first page are things that I would have written myself. The dedication says this, for Ava. The day she was born was the happiest day of her parents' lives. As I read these words, I am convinced that it isn't a coincidence, but rather the Heavenly Father himself reaching down to render the hug that we desperately need. Because though it is pitch black and our side of the world slumbers, he still sees me. After all, he is not sleeping either. Let's bow our heads in prayer. If this song, psalm could encourage us and the church in any way. It is that God does see us in our pain and sorrow. He hears us and he longs to restore us. David models this for us. How are we to approach a holy God even in our unholy anger towards him? God says, come. Don't hide anything. Don't wait till you're better. Just come. Because when we come to him in our pain, even though we believe he is the source of our pain, we are being honest before a God in whom we can hide nothing. And we are acknowledging our need for him. And in that small act of faith, and in those small, simple prayers, asking God, God shows himself. He reveals his heart. He restores our soul. And nothing may change in your life. Your situation may be no different. It could be worse. And yet, everything will have changed because God is there. And you sense his face and his favor upon you. And his presence in your life. So let's just take a moment this morning. 
in the quietness of our hearts, in the stillness of our souls, to be honest with ourselves and ask God, what, what is my how long question? In my anger that is expressed to the people around me, how is that actually an anger that's directed towards you? Ask him for his help. And he will meet you where you are. He loves you. He has not forgotten his promise to you. His desire is that even in your anger that you would be drawn to him. Spend a few minutes in quiet reflection and in prayer and the worship team will lead us in some songs of response.